Welcome to another episode of the World Salon Podcast. Continuing from last time, we are joined by Professor Bruce Usher, Director of the Tamar Center for Social Enterprise at Columbia Business School, an expert at the intersection of finance, social, and environmental issues. In this episode, we will explore the interplay of economics, policy, and innovation in the realm of climate-related issues and sustainable investment. You know, speaking of you know the U.S. or other places not doing enough, one of the questions I actually had later on was, you know, in the Climate Change Performance Index, which ranks 60 countries in how well they're fostering climate change, the U.S. actually ranks quite lowly in 55th place. And the question was, why does the U.S. rank so low compared to other, you know, so to speak, more developed countries? Yeah. And, yeah. and I don't know how the rankings made exactly. I've sort of looked at it briefly and and, and the like. Um, my guess is it ranks low because we've, our policies tend to be very poor. We don't have a price on carbon. Hmm. And that you know, counts against it. As I said a few minutes ago, I think we should have a price on carbon. But I think it's measuring, my, my guess is, because I, I don't know exactly on that particular ranking system, it's measuring the wrong thing. What should we measure? I think it mainly measures energy consumption, um, emissions targets, and the creation and attainment of policy goals. Yeah. Yeah. Three major factors. So, at the end of the day, you know, climate change is really complex. There's so many factors. But there's one thing about climate change that's not complex at all and, and is important to, to hold on to. It's measurable. Climate change is about the tons of CO2 and other greenhouse gases that are emitted and end up in the atmosphere. That's it. You can talk about policies, we can talk about investment and capital, we can talk about technologies, we can talk about anything else. Mm-hmm. The end of the day, there's only one thing that matters. How much greenhouse gases is being emitted and is currently emitted. So what's the flow of greenhouse gas and what's the stock in the atmosphere? Mm-hmm. And we can, in fact, we do measure pretty much that for almost every country. We know what those numbers are. So really what matters is understanding what are those flows and how are they changing and why. So for example, a country whose flow decreases because they just had an economic recession. Well, it's nice the numbers are down, but that doesn't really help us that much because presumably their economy is going to turn around. A country whose emissions drop significantly because they implement new technologies quickly, say renewable energy, that does help us. Because that's not only does it help us reduce the flow in one year, but we can know that that's going to be consistent. Those numbers keep going down. And so to me, it's really about understanding how do countries decarbonize their economy while maintaining prosperity in that economy. And I think these two things are important because we have to decarbonize or we'll face a catastrophe. But we also have to maintain and ideally grow some form of prosperity. And in some circles, this is controversial. There are people who believe, no, we should, we should really focus on degrowth. We can't do this. And my response to that is that will never solve the problem for, for two reasons. <laughs> One is the vast majority of humanity today, something like close to 90% of humans today, are not at a level of prosperity 
that they're willing to give up economic growth. In other words, those who are in less developed countries, uh, they wish to attain a level of prosperity that we have here in the U.S. and many other countries today, and they're not going to give up that economic growth. So first of all, you have to have a, uh, a solution to climate change that still allows for economic growth. So that's the first part of it. And the second part is we have to both have economic prosperity, we have to reduce emissions all the way to zero. You can't degrowth to zero. Degrowth to zero means we're back to living in caves. That's not going to happen, certainly not voluntarily. And so um, I think the numbers that we should look at in countries are what are their emissions? Have they peaked? Are they declining? At what rate are they declining? Why are they declining? And how does that look at getting to zero by 2050, 2060, something like that? One question I sometimes ask an audience when I give a, a talk, I ask this question, when will U.S. greenhouse gas emissions peak? And some people in the audience will say, they're never going to come down. Mm. Others will say, we're, yeah, we'll, we'll get there pretty soon. Well, it's, it's, a real, it's a real red herring of a question. It's an unfair question when I ask it, because the true answer, which some people in the audience know, U.S. emissions peaked in 2007. They've been declining almost ever since then. That's a really important thing to know. Now, are they declining fast enough? The answer is no. Definitely not. We need to do better. But if we start from the premise that the U.S. has, you know, is done terrible, that they're ranked terrible, that it's all bad, I think, first of all, that's just not true. And secondly, it's highly misleading us, it takes us in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. We don't need to do things dramatically differently here. We need to just do more of what we're doing. We are decarbonizing. We need to decarbonize faster. And I think that's unique to the US, by the way. Many countries today are at that point. The big question around this issue today, and the one that actually is one of the biggest questions in climate change today is at what point do emissions in China peak and start to decline. We're not there yet. I think some people say 2035. No, I, th I think it's earlier than that. I think we're actually getting reasonably close to Chinese emissions peaking. It's hard to know because, of course, it's tied to economic growth. Also, it's tied to what kind of economic growth. Are we talking heavy industry versus services? There's different emissions. Um, China is fascinating because if we look at renewable energy as an example, far more renewable energy is being built in and, and implemented in China than any other country. If we look at electric vehicles, same thing. But if we look at construction of coal plants, also number one, right? So you've got, you've got some really, really, really tremendously positive on the climate front uh, things being happening in China and, and some very negative things as well. It's very hard to really understand the whole thing. It's such a large, complex economy. But we, it does appear that we're getting close to peak emissions. Okay, still way too high, but that's an important point because once you start, once that trend changes, then it's just a question of accelerating it, and it won't be easy. The Chinese economy is very reliant on fossil fuels at the moment, um, but that's, it's not infeasible that we'll get that change really quickly. I see. I mean, the climate transition is obviously underway, and it's obviously one of the largest issues right now. 
Now, within this context, right, during every major transition, and another point that you brought up a lot in your conversation was economic growth and prosperity. So during large transitions like the one we're seeing right now, there's always going to be winners and losers. So on a country level, you know, how do you evaluate who the winners and losers are? And from a more micro perspective, from a company level, how do you evaluate which companies are going to be the winners and losers of this big energy, energy transition, climate change yeah. transition? So that's one of the most, to me, most interesting and also hardest questions, to be mm -hmm. honest. So I think predicting things like decarbonization, emissions trends, or sexual changes like the energy sector moving from fossil fuels to renewables are relatively easy predictions to make. I mean, we can be off by a little bit, but those trends are pretty locked in at this point. Knowing, understanding or forecasting the implications of those trends for countries or companies or even individuals is much harder to do, right? Mm -hmm. And we can look at all sorts of different you know, transitions that happen in different industries, the classic one most recently being technology. So you could say, and we could still say today, you know, but let's go back, say, 25 years or so and say, 25, 30 years and say, well, the microprocessor, computers, and then smartphones and so on, those technologies are pretty easy to predict. They're going to get better, faster, more productive, and so on. Who will win and lose in that? I mean, it was really hard to predict. Um, you know, companies who had browsers well before Google who did not survive, right? There are chip companies who are dominant, who no longer exist, and so on. So it's hard to do. What I would say about climate change is the following. At the geopolitical level, the country level, clearly countries whose economies are fossil fuel based, uh, you know, the, the leading oil producing <coughs> countries, um, are going to suffer through this transition. Now, some of them are prepared, you know, well prepared for that. Some, uh, some of the countries in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia and others, are, mm -hmm. they recognize these changes. Um, they're also likely to be the sort of the, the last producer standing because they're the very cheapest production costs. And they have enormous reserves of capital to sort of finance that transition. Other countries that are very uh, fossil fuel based but don't necessarily have that investment or foresight, for example, Russia, mm -hmm. may really end up being a geopolitical loser in this transition. But the number of countries that fit that, that category of you know, economies based on fossil fuels is a relatively small number of countries. You do have some countries who are not rich in fossil fuels, um, let's say China and, 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 and India, coal, very heavy in coal, but not in oil and natural gas, which are much more valuable fossil fuels. I think in many ways there's there's a, a, a good likelihood that ultimately those countries will benefit from the transition. Mm -hmm. They also have the, 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 the manufacturing production capacity or capabilities to, to lead in this. So at the country level, I think we can see some countries will be winners and losers. Countries like uh, the U.S. is probably, um, I would say, net, you know, on energy side, sort of a push. We're kind of, you know, we're slight slight uh, exporters at this point. Um, where the U.S. probably comes out pretty well is that the U.S. economy is extremely adaptable, mm -hmm. extremely innovative, and adapts to change very rapidly. Mm -hmm. It's one of the economic strengths here. So if you look at this sort of, this transition, energy transition, this climate transition, 
and say that countries that can adapt quickly, I don't mean adapt physically to a warming climate, I mean adapt their economies to a, to a, you know, a different set of circumstances, um, the U.S. is likely to come to do really well. When you get to the corporate level, it's, um, it's really hard to pick winners and losers. What we have seen is companies that um, are both able to innovate and change, come out ahead, and companies that have moats around a bit, often regulatory moats, can sometimes come out ahead as well. So let me give a couple examples of that. On the ability to change, the classic example would be the automobile industry. So a lot has been written, and I write in my books, but others have too, about Tesla. Why was Tesla able to essentially take a 10-year lead over every other car company in electric vehicles. And you could say, well, it's because of technology, but actually Tesla's technology, Tesla mostly used other technology that was existing. Lithium-ion, they did not invent the lithium-ion battery, mm. right? They, they were clever at sort of using the battery and, and, and the software design around it. But Tesla was able to take a 10-year lead because the incumbent automobile companies really bad a change. They were unwilling to cannibalize their traditional internal combustion engines. They had a hard time switching. It only got to the point when Tesla became such a huge threat that they pretty much were forced to change. Mm -hmm. So in those industries where the incumbent companies just are not good at, at a massive shift, then all things being equal, the, the upstart, the disruptor, it's probably going to come out ahead, as Tesla had. In other industries, say utilities, power industry, <coughs> energy industry, in this case, the incumbent might have some big advantages. The classic example there is less well known than Tesla is a company called NextEra. Hmm. It's a utility. It used to be called Florida Power and Light. It's like a Florida utility, sleepy little Florida power company. NextEra early on looked at the energy transition and they said, we're both going to defend our territory, because as a utility, they have a lot of strength in the regulatory world. And we're going to very aggressively invest in renewables. Next area today is the largest owner of renewable energy projects in America, number oh, one, wow. and by far the most valuable utility in America today. Hmm. It's a huge success story financially. They are a winner. But I don't think some little upstart could have, could have done that. I think they, they had the regulatory advantage. So winners and losers, depending on what sector you're in, uh, at which point in time, you'll see slightly different outcomes there um, on the business side. Now, Professor Usher's new book, Investing in the Era of Climate Change, published last August, deals with the very important topic of investors discerning between the winners and losers in a climate resilient world and finding an optimal path for their capital. I see. I think that's very, very interesting, you know, having a framework to look at, you know, who are going to be the ultimate winners and losers of this large transition. And with that, I think we could move into our second topic, which is investing in a climate resilient world in which we have to determine, okay, who are the winners, who are the losers, and where do we divert our capital to? Yeah. So you recently wrote a book. Has it just been published or is it no, still No, it's published? about a year ago now. Yeah. Oh, a year ago, okay. Yeah. In fact, exactly a year ago, it was August last year. Oh, fantastic. Well, yeah. the book is called Investing in the Era of Climate Change. 
you know, as we dive into the heart of this insightful book, we'll unearth strategies and insights that offer a pathway for driving positive change in, a, in the face of climate adversaries. Yes. So the first question is, given the rapidly evolving landscape, could you provide our listeners with an overreaching view of contemporary driving forces propelling this evolution in investment trends? I should add, and I don't know how you, you probably want to recut this in, 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 a little in, bit, yeah. in the thing, but that, that's okay. <laughs> now, let me, let me make two more. Sorry, also, let me just check my time. Ooh, we're no, getting really late here. Um, um, do you have a hard stop at? I can go a little past five, five but not too much. So okay. five, ten minutes if we can. So we yeah. might have to reschedule you in for another. No, let's, let's do it. <laughs> time's gonna be, it's going to get much worse as, mm. as soon as I start teaching shortly. Um, that's what I did. So first of all, the, the book, by the way, um, very shortly, the next couple months, will be out in Chinese. Mm. We have a Chinese publisher who's, who's bringing it out in an Arabic uh, by the end of the year. So it's coming out in multiple languages. Oh, do you know which publisher in China? Uh, Citic. Oh, okay. So I don't have exact publication date, but I think it's out quite soon. So two things. First of all, the trends, um, we discussed those a, a few minutes ago. So mm -hmm. those are the trends of the physical manifestation of, of climate risk. Uh, changing social norms, government support for mm -hmm. climate action, and the new technologies to decarbonize. Those are the four trends that are really propelling investment dollars into the sector. Mm -hmm. I think your second question related to that was how are, what, what strategies are investors using? Yes. Yeah. And so what I write about in the book are five strategies that investors are employing today. And I want to go through the first three really quickly because they're less, they're less important, actually. Mm. And the first strategy is simply risk management and simply saying, looking, looking at one's investments. You know, if I own, mm. if I own a building and, or a house and it's near the seashore, is it likely to be affected by chronic flooding? Or if I own a company that's got assets at risk of, say, you know, increased heat or wildfires, you want, you know, if I'm an insurance business, I want to maybe get out of that business. So that's, that's risk management, first strategy. The second strategy is one completely different, which is divestment. So uh, many institutions today, particularly nonprofits, universities like Columbia and others, have divested from fossil fuels in their portfolios. That their strategy is, I don't want to own oil and gas coal companies in my portfolio. It's a strategy that makes a lot of sense from a values alignment perspective. You know, if I believe in climate change, which I do, why would I invest in companies who are making climate change worse? Why would I profit from this? And, and when it comes to one's values, that's a pretty, pretty important issue. The th problem with divestment is it really does very little, if anything to address climate change and in fact may have some negative repercussions when it comes to addressing climate change. Why? Because by divesting you're selling shares in companies and by default by selling shares someone else is buying your shares. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you can't sell. Right. If someone buys those shares probably they're less concerned about climate change and energy companies or they wouldn't buy your shares. And so all you've done is taken your shares and put in the hands of an owner who no longer cares about the issue so much. So the other issues are secondary shares. It doesn't affect the company. It's not like you're taking capital from the company in any way. And by the way, um, the vast majority of oil and gas assets today are not owned by public companies. If you add up 
the reserves of all the big public companies, say Exxon and Chevron and all these companies, that's 10% of the world's reserves. 90% are in government or private hands. All you're really doing is sort of pushing more of those assets into private hands. So divestment is a very popular strategy today. It's not a very effective strategy. The third one that's even more popular today is um, what we call ESG. Very mm -hmm. popular investing strategy today. <coughs> Incorporating environmental, social, and governance factors into your investment decisions. ESG has become popular because it's a smart form of investing. I mean, when you think about making an investment, you know, I'm looking at buying, say, shares in a company. I might look at, you know, how good are their products? Mm -hmm. What do I think of the management team? How's the competition? You know, I look at all those factors. You maybe sort of look at the financial statements. And all it's saying is, if you want to do, do ESG investing, look at all that and also do a little more analysis, do a little more work, understanding things like climate change. How will that affect this company? We'll be kind of foolish not to consider those factors today, right? All ESG is, is a more sophisticated form of financial analysis. The problem with ESG is that it doesn't really do much to address climate change. Just because a company comes out well on ESG metrics and makes a good investment doesn't mean that company is doing things that help us decarbonize the global economy. It simply means that company is well positioned for climate change. And so that third strategy is extremely popular, but again, not terribly impactful when it comes to climate. The fourth strategy is a much more directed one, and we call this thematic investing. Mm -hmm. It's when the investor says, look, I really care about climate change. Where can I invest my capital that's really gonna make a difference? An example of that, we've been talking about renewable energy earlier in, earlier in the podcast. I'm gonna put my investment into renewable energy companies. I'm going to put my capital into, say, NextEra, the utility we talked about a few minutes ago, because they invest in renewable energy. My dollars are going to go to this company that's going to directly invest in climate solutions. Thematic investing. It could be a lot of different sectors, electric vehicles, renewables, or others. That's an increasingly popular strategy. And the fifth strategy is a very unusual one, and most investors can't or won't do it. And this is what we call impact-first investing. Mm -hmm. And this is where the investor says, you know, climate, re climate change really matters to me. I want my dollars to have as much impact as possible. And if I get a return on my investment that's lower than I would get in, in any other investment, that's okay. I'm not mm -hmm. looking to maximize my risk-adjusted financial return. I would like to get a return, maybe a small return, maybe get my money back or something, but I'm not looking to make a financial return. That's what we call impact-first investing. Impact-first investing is important because there's some climate solutions today that are so risky, so long-term, so uncertain that your typical investor, your investor with a fiduciary responsibility who manage money for other investors, for, can't invest in those. But those investments are really important. Someone's got to put those capital to work. Uh, to a certain extent, it's government money, but we need investment capital there as well. And so those are the five strategies. And... Um, all of them are growing in importance today. I see. And which strategy do you think will be the most dominant or the most, you know, strat strategically making sense? Thematic. Thematic. Because yeah. thematic very clearly says, I see an opportunity. Mm -hmm. I care about climate change. I see a way of addressing climate change. Mm -hmm. I see a business opportunity in that sector. And I'm going to put my capital to work there. And mm -hmm. that capital is both going to help us address climate change. Mm -hmm. And if I'm right, I'm also going to do very well as an investor. And I you know see. what? If I do well as an investor, other people will pick up on it. 
When I say I, I mean exactly. as an example. Although I am a thematic investor in, in a number of companies mm -hmm. uh, around climate change. And if more people pick up on that, then we'll see more thematic investing. And that's what we're seeing today. It's an increasing amount of capital flowing into these specific sectors. Hmm. And do you, see, do you think that all this capital flow into the sector will make the sector overcrowded and a lot of you know, poorly positioned companies will get funded? Yeah. Where that funding should go probably elsewhere. Yeah, and, 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 and I, be better. that's a good question because I think we are seeing that, some of that right yeah. now. We see a lot of capital flowing into the renewable sector. We see a lot of capital flowing into some thematic sectors that honestly are pretty risky. Areas like green hydrogen, for example. Mm -hmm. Green hydrogen is a very interesting technology, phenomenal promise, and enormous hurdles. Mm -hmm. And yet we've seen a lot of capital moving to that sector. Um, this can be a problem. You know, many people worry about there's not enough capital going to climate change solutions. Sometimes there can be too much. And that's a problem because then investors do poorly. Well, okay, so what? It's their money, it's their risk, they can, you know, it doesn't matter, it's, you win some, you lose some. But the problem is if a whole sector does badly, then that sector will not receive capital for a number of years until sort of investors forget about it. And, right. then, and we saw this in 2007, 8 uh, timeframe with renewables and other climate companies back then where investors mm -hmm. lost a lot of money. And it took a number of years before they were willing to sort of go back into the sector. So that's not good. What you want to see is, is good returns, but not too much money flowing into the sector at once. I see. So I'm still very curious. So this thematic investing, how is that different from just regular investing? If you see an opportunity, then you invest in it. Yeah, it's a great question. So the only difference, small tweak, but it's an important difference, is it starts with the theme. And the theme here is I care about climate change. Mm -hmm. I care about climate change and also a theme that climate change is going to change the business opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so as an investor, both I care about it and I see how it's going to change my investing landscape, my opportunities. Mm -hmm. Therefore, that's my lens of making investment decisions. And, but after that, you're right, it's like any other investment process, really. I see. So with thematic investing, I think it makes sense to investors, to these institutions, but the other forms like ESG investing, um, divesting, or um, what was that last one that you mentioned? The one that... Impact first. Impact first, right. These seem like it, there's a sort of basic conflict between making money, which is the fundamental principle of investing, yeah. versus protecting the climate. Yeah. Now, how, how do investors balance these two factors? Or how do the institutions that invest on behalf of investors balance these two? Because well, what I would say is divestment and ESG a little bit similar, right? Divesting is not investing in bad companies mm -hmm. and ESG is in trying to find the companies that are good on these ESG metrics. There's plenty of research evidence that suggests that both these strategies get you market returns. So you can mm -hmm. be divest fossil fuels and still get a good return on the market, the same return as the market. In fact, you can buy ETFs that basically get you the market return without fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. Same with ESG, ESG investing. Some people would argue you outperform the market, others would say maybe you don't. But it's essentially market returns. And again, there's lots of ETFs and other funds that demonstrate that. The issue is not the market return. There's no give up there. The issue is how much, how effective is it at helping us address climate change? And that's really where the problem is. It's not very effective. Impact first, here you give up return. Mm -hmm. Not always. You know, if you make a bet, say, on some, say, nuclear fusion, if you say, you know what, I'm going to invest in nuclear fusion because that, that's impact first because that is extremely risky, extremely long-term. Mm -hmm. But if you do turn out to be right, you're going to get a very nice return on your investment, right? right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
but generally speaking, you're, you're going to underperform the market. I see. Yeah. So in terms of the investing world, where is the money going now? What are the, the hottest technologies? The, the or two the hottest, hottest areas by far, and this is unsurprising, are renewable energy and uh, particularly solar and electric vehicles. And when I say electric vehicles, the infrastructure, everything that goes with electric vehicles, the mm -hmm. whole build-up, um, that is where really trillions of dollars are, are flowing today. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, actually speaking of electrical vehicles, I have a very um, interesting question. So Tesla, right, they've had a market lead on the EV field for well over 10 years, one of the first to actually mass scale produce EVs. But I think recently this year, the Chinese company, BID, actually outpaced Tesla in how many vehicles they produce. Yeah. How has China been able to you know, experience such an explosive growth in renewables, like you said earlier, solar um, and solar factories and in EVs? Yeah. How, how is that so, so I think I think there are a couple of issues, and I, you know, I, I can't say that with, with certainty. Right? I don't I don't know the Chinese market as well as the U.S. But there are a couple of advantages. First of all, the Chinese automobile market is bigger than the U.S. automobile market. So if you're looking at absolute sales, the numbers are larger. Secondly, the automobiles that BYD and, and the other Chinese company EV companies are selling are much lower price points. So more cars, but not necessarily more value. In those cars. And the third reason I would say is the Chinese government is very good at implementing policies targeted economic development. And it's not just in EVs, it's been in you know, lots of industries. So that, you know, well, I say the Inflation Reduction Act here has been very, very effective. And there have been other supports for EVs going back a number of years since Tesla was founded. You know, they t the government support here in the US is, is less consistent than it's been in China around. Around, around these policies. So I, I think it's not, it comes back to my earlier point, it's not a quite, I wouldn't say BYD is better than Tesla or vice versa. What I would say is those companies has really developed in reaction to the opportunity in their individual markets. And as they expand, at some point they start to compete. So now you have Tesla with the big factory in Shanghai and selling cars there. At some point, I'm sure we'll have BYD cars sold here and so on, and they start to start to get there. But it's an example of how, really, within countries, you see some really interesting innovations and advancements that um, I think are really important to addressing climate change. I think what BYD is doing is, is fabulous. It goes back many years. It's not a new company. It's been around for a while. Professor Bruce Usher has provided invaluable insight, dissecting the intricacies of climate change, the role of major global players, and the economics behind the scene. The discussion kickstarts with an analysis of how unforeseen events, like the rise of companies such as Tesla, have shaped the automotive industry and the implications of such disruption for traditional giants. The varying geopolitical impacts of the ongoing energy transition, noting the potential challenges for fossil fuel-reliant economies and the prospect for innovative and adaptive nations like the U.S. is further highlighted. Transitioning into sustainable investment Professor Usher shares key concepts from his recent book, Investing in the Era of Climate Change. The conversation sheds light on the evolving landscape of sustainable investment strategies, emphasizing the importance of risk management, ESG investing, and the rise of thematic investments in sectors like renewable energy. Through our conversation, we remain hopeful. We remain hopeful. As the path today, forward, the path is hard and ahead as we've discussed. is hard, but, but very, very much possible. possible. And, and a true collaborative, true collaborative effort is needed to succeed. I'm your host, Charlie Dew. Please subscribe to our channel, World Salon, for more insightful conversations about the pressing issues around our world. See you next time.